So I just wanted to mention, we have a, we have a whole holy hot tub over here, and it's going to get used in second service, uh, we're pretty certain. But if you're in this service and baptism is something you're like feeling in the moment today that God says, yep, that's the thing I got to do, you can stay and be baptized in second service. And if you don't have time for that, I, we'll change as soon as this is done and make that happen. You know, we can, we, it can happen today. There's no need to wait. If you're online, there's plenty of time. Come on down. Isn't that what they said on the prices, right? Like, come on down. So, so if, if you've recently given your life to Jesus, if you've never been baptized, if you're ready to be public with your faith in Jesus, baptism is just the thing for you. And I want to make sure we're clear on that because I love... Uh, to make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we say baptism. Every church means something different. Here at Arvis, as our understanding of the Bible is that baptism is not the water that washes away your sins. It's not one of the rituals you do to make God accept you one day when you get to heaven. Baptism is where you publicly identify your life with Jesus Christ. It's where you say that my life is his and I've made that decision to follow him. I've made that decision to ask him to forgive me of my sins. Baptism is where I'm willing to say to my family, to my friends, to the public, that my life is aligned with his death and burial and resurrection. And that's why we do baptism the way we do, where we go down under the water and we come up out of the water. It gives us that beautiful picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. And um, if that's something God's moving and speaking to your heart about, believe it or not, we keep uh, extra towels on hand, extra shorts on hand. Uh, we've got t-shirts for this gig. So, so if you don't have clothing, but you're interested, like we're trying to take away, like there's no pressure. We're not a high, I don't want you to misinterpret. It's not guilt. It's just great gratitude. And uh, one of the things we love, love, love to celebrate. So that said, I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18 that I will come to in just a moment. Matthew 18, we're going to read that scripture together shortly, but I do want to catch us up. We're in a series called Masterclass. We're studying the parables of Jesus and seeing what the master, who is the master teacher, would teach us about life, and many, many other things. One of the things we've done with this is we've examined all of these everyday stories that Jesus told, right? And I love the pictures that they are. They're, they're just they're everyday stuff that an agrarian society, like a farming society, would identify with and understand. Jesus uses the power of everyday stories to create a sense of urgency about his kingdom and his kingship in their lives and ours. Just think about some of the things we've studied. Back in the parable of the lost phone, we, we, we talked about the urgency of what happens when Jesus finds us, when what's lost is found. We've talked about the urgency of the voice of Jesus taking deeper root in my life. We've talked about the urgency of loving people who aren't already the people I love. We've talked about the urgency of making sure that we have the right view of Jesus in our minds because having the right view of God and how I think about God changes how I think about everything else in life. We've talked about the urgency of having a heart that is molded by grace in the image of Jesus. And today, I want to talk about the urgency to understand my need to be forgiven and my need also to forgive. This is what it says in Matthew 18. My Bible calls it the parable of the unmerciful servant. I was trying to think of catchy names this week. You'll see why I say this, but uh, I was thinking like the parable of the dumb dude. <laughs> there are other words, but we probably shouldn't say those in church. 
So Peter came to Jesus. This is Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, and there's a context for this, and I would really encourage you to go back and read it. The verse before this is, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And it's in the context of what we do in the body of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, just Does he mean all of us brother or sister or does he mean brother or sister i just think that through for a minute because sometimes the people who hurt us deeply in life are the people we're closest to how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, common thought in that day among the Jewish rabbis of the day was something like up to three times. In fact, there are Jewish rabbis in that day who said, first time you forgive, second time you forgive, third time you forgive, fourth time, no forgive. So Peter says, hey, not, not a... Not three times, not four times, up to like, three times two is six, add one, seven, up to seven times, right? And seven is thought to be a number, uh, biblically speaking, of completion. So Peter thinks he's going way out on the limb, and he probably thinks Jesus is going to back him down some. He's trying to show off his spirituality, up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or there might be a footnote in your Bible. There's, there's some disagreement among scholars about whether this is better translated 70 times seven times. So what I do know about 77 and 70 times seven or 490, and you're going to count, is that right? is that that's more than my fingers and toes. So, and again, knowing that seven is a number of completeness, complete, completeness and that 10 is also a number of completeness, seven times seven times 10 is a bit like saying a near infinite amount of times. Let's be clear. If you're sitting around going 461, again, I know you're an accountant. It's, I'm married, right? I, this is what accountants do, 461, 400. But if we're scorekeeping like that, aren't we missing the point? Right? All right, I can't wait till we're on 469. Like two more times and I get to not forgive. I think that's an exercise in greatly missing the point. Scorekeeping is what religion does. This is about grace and the kingdom, and it's not at all about scorekeeping. It's about true, real forgiveness. Jesus went on and said, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. So just pause there. We talked about talents in the parable of the talents weeks ago. A talent is thought to be something like 15 to 20 years wages. A talent is thought to be something like 58 to 80 pounds. In fact, there's no real evidence that they actually had a piece of, of, of money that was sort of rendered as a talent because it was so much that it would only be the kinds of things that we would think in terms of bars of gold. And that's why they translate this bags of gold so that we can really wrap our minds around. And Jesus says that the one owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. If I were to try to count that, it'd be a long time. 10,000 bags of gold. Again, they, some suggested that a talent was worth between 58 and 80 pounds. And so I told you when we did the parable of the talents, that if you take the price of gold now, and you look at a pound of gold 
today and multiply that times, let's say, 70, you end up with something in the range of $1.4 million for one bag of gold. This man owed 10,000 of those. Again, if you're counting, that's $14 billion, right? If your name is Bezos or, or something like that, then you count in those kinds of things. But this is well beyond anything I count in. It's a near infinite amount of money, relatively speaking. It's the kind of money that governments trade in, not the kind of money that you and I really think about. If you were to take every piece of debt that you and I owed, every mortgage, every credit card, every car, right, every student loan, if you were to take all of the debt of all that we in this room collectively owed, we'd be nowhere near $14 billion. Would you celebrate if the king wiped that off the books today? Yeah, you would have instant inflation. Sorry, we're not here for that. It, it. $14 billion. How do you owe a king $14 billion? At some level, I would suggest that you've done something that cost him everything. And this isn't in the story but I start to think about the king and the king's family and what you've taken away from the king when you think about owing a debt that would be impossible to be repaid. In fact, I begin to think about the king's son. I wonder whether this man took the life of the king's son. Again, that's not in the story. I'm just saying this is a near infinite amount of money. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And what I can guarantee you is you can sell the man and his wife and his kids and his camels and whatever he has. It won't total $14 billion. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Which is a promise he can't keep. Because this is a near infinite amount of money. Now, if you're starting to think about God at this point, this is what you and I, thinking about I'll do some good to outweigh the bad, looks like in the scales of heaven. Like, no way you could possibly pay this back. Be patient. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Again, if I could wave my wand and all of our collective debt in this world was wiped away, would you have like a debt-burning celebration service or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it would be huge. Like, Julia Roberts kind of huge. It would, it would be ginormous. And you would think it would change you a little bit, don't you think? But when that servant went out, the one who had the 10,000 bags of gold forgiven, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. So the word here is, is uh, 100 denarii. A denarius was a, a, a day's wage for a day laborer. He was owed 100 of those by a fellow servant, which tells you he... He's out there loaning money like it's big bucks. And he's, you know, it's like three months of pay that he's loaning someone, which isn't nothing. But also, 
isn't 10,000 bags of gold. There's no way he was ever going to pay back the 10,000 bags of gold. And he goes to the man who owed him a hundred, who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. And if, if nothing has reminded him at this point of what the king has done for him, this phrase should, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Now this man actually had a chance to pay it back. But the servant refused. And instead he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Do you think that talk went well? You know, another chat with the king. First one went pretty well. I don't know. That's why I'm thinking this is the parable of the dumb dude. Master called the servant in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Remember the initial question, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister? Up to seven? Not seven times. 70 times seven times. This points to something I think we've been getting at when we think of urgency this entire series. See, the greatest sign of Jesus' work in my life in truth is that I'm willing to love as Jesus loves. We say that a lot here at Harvest. Hello, it's all over the building. It's on all our stuff, right? That we're here to love as Jesus loves, and the greatest sign of spiritual maturity in my life is a willingness to love others like Jesus loves them. To pass on grace as Jesus passes on grace. And the greatest sign, therefore, of spiritual immaturity, or we could say of religion that misses grace, is an unwillingness to love as Jesus loves. Again, the greatest sign of spiritual maturity would be a willingness to pass on to others what Jesus has passed on to me. Which, by the way, is very different than being able to quote Scripture at a moment's notice. Like, you know, somebody goes, Isaiah 15, verse 3, and you got it. Nothing wrong with that. I am for memorizing Scripture. I've hidden your word in my heart, in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's a good thing to do. But if I'm doing it for the sake of showing off... And I'm not willing to love as Jesus loves, to pass on what Jesus has passed on to me. I'm missing the point. Therefore, the greatest sign of spiritual maturity is this sense that I will give freely what Jesus has given freely to me. Among those, forgiveness. So in your notes, very quickly, I just gave you a little primer on forgiveness that sums up quite a bit of stuff from the Bible. And, and the reason I put it this way, and I didn't put it in the blanks, is I want to run through it very quickly. But it's important we know what we're talking about when we talk about forgiveness. I put in this that, that if you could sum it all up, kind of the nitty-gritty of forgiveness, that one, forgiveness is never easy. You would know that, right? In fact, if forgiveness is easy, one of two things is going on. Either forgiveness wasn't really needed, or you're lying to yourself. <laughs> forgiveness is never easy. 
Forgiving others is not based on their deserving it. Forgiving other people is based on my own forgiveness by Jesus. I don't sit and weigh the scales and say, have they earned it or not? Actually, humanly, we do that all the time, don't we? I'm not ready to forgive yet. I'm still kind of liking my bitterness at the moment. When you act like you deserve it, when you ask 490 times, then maybe I'll get around to it. Forgiving others is not based on whether they deserve it. It's based on my own forgiveness by Jesus. Forgiveness is to cancel the debt. That's the clearest picture in Scripture of what forgiveness is. It comes right out of the story, many other places, that, that forgiveness is to wipe the debt away. That, that in hurting someone, I owe them something. And when they forgive that, they wipe away. I mean, think of it in theft kind of terms. If I steal 10,000 bags of gold from you, I owe you 10,000 bags of gold plus interest. Plus probably some jail time. (laughs) Forgiveness cancels the debt. Forgiveness is also to stop the resentment. It's not forgiveness if I say, I have wiped away the debt. I am so good. Look at me, but I still hate you. I haven't really forgiven if I'm still milking the resentment. Forgiveness is both a decision or a choice, an event, a a line in the sand. And forgiveness is also a process, something that is unfolded. And and I promise you, the deeper the debt, the the closer you get to 10,000 bags of gold, the more you're going to look at forgiveness and say, yes, I made that hard line in the sand, but I'm still unfolding all that means. Event and process. And forgiveness does not mean that all of the negative emotions instantly disappear. When the trauma is deep, and it often is, we're not talking about some empty little tiny thing here where we go, oh, forgiveness, you know, they hurt you a little bit, and you hurt them a little bit back, and you both forgive each other, and oh, it's all no big deal. We're in the realm of it's big, and it's a big deal. And making the choice to forgive doesn't mean that negative emotion is instantly gone. It does mean that I'm on an ongoing basis choosing again and again to stop the resentment. Does this make sense? I'm squeezing a lot in here. This is two messages, right? This is the message within the message, the parable within the parable. And forgiveness does not mean that trust has been earned, right? Forgiveness and trust are two different things. And we have to be clear about that. We also have to be clear in a a sort of legal sense in the world that, that forgiving a person does not mean that there are not legal consequences for them, right? You can forgive the person who broke into your house and stole your stuff But that doesn't mean that the law doesn't apply to them. Right? You can read stories of people who've had family members taken from them, and the person is serving on death row or something of that nature, and the family has forgiven. That person's still serving out a prison sentence. If you struggle with that at all, I put a variety of verses here from the Old and New Testament, mostly the New Testament. They all say mostly the same thing. Do not say that, uh, Proverbs 20, do not say I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. This is part of when I'm in the middle of that process and I don't know what to do. I, I trust that God can handle it better than I can. Matthew 6, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The same thing Jesus said at the end of this 
parable, right? Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3 says the same thing, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Romans 12, you can read it another time, talks about overcoming evil with good. Not evil for evil, but good for evil. So there's this tension in this parable. Because if I put myself in the parable, I might be the dude who owed 100 silver coins. I might be the dude who owned 10,000 bags of gold. Who I am not in the parable is the king who was owed a lot, in spite of my name. I have found that having the last name king has nothing to do with how much I'm worth. If I'm anybody in the parable, I'm probably the guy who needs forgiveness but doesn't want to forgive. The tension is this. I owe a seemingly impossible debt to repay, and I want forgiveness. But juxtapose that. Is that a nice word? Right? Put that up against. I'm owed a relatively small debt by others, and I only want to forgive, what, up to seven times? Do you know the story of Corey Tinboom? Corey's family grew up in the Nether- Netherlands, in Holland, um, before the time of World War II and during the time of World War II. When the Nazis invaded her homeland, her and her family, they were watchmakers, if I remember right, watch fixers, watch keepers, whatever that word would be. They, they repaired, yeah, timekeepers, that works. They, on many occasions, did everything they could to project local Jewish people, people on the run for their lives from the Nazis. They hid them, they protected them, and they were eventually, as a family, arrested for doing so. None of this story I'm going to read for you is about empty forgiveness. Anti-Semitism is in the news right now. I can't possibly find a justification for it from a Christian perspective. You just can't. But then again, I can't find a justification for hate in grace at all. So I'm going to read this story that Corey wrote. It's from a writing (laughs) called I'm Still Learning to Forgive. She says it this way. Her words are far better than if I tried to sum it up, so I'm just going to read it. I will come back to the notes. I promise you I will make the one thing. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. That when we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. 
There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. That's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. And it came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center on the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Her sister was named Betsy. She thought to herself, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. Since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. This is where we talk about 10,000 bags of gold. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. You know, we all have signs, this is me, you know, we all have signs up in our lives that say no trespassing. People trespass all the time. I knew it was not only a commandment of God, but I knew it as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to, able to return to the outside world and able to rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. And those who nursed their bitterness could not. They remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. 
Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place, and the current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes, and I cried, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I owe an seemingly impossible debt to repay. And if you stand here today or sit here, I'm, I'm not standing either, but I was. If you sit here today and you think, I'm not that bad, I haven't done 10,000 bags of gold kind of stuff, my debt's just not that bad, me and God, we got a deal, like, it's all good, there's nothing to worry about, because I'm not bad like a Nazi. I think, again, we're missing the point. Scorekeeping, by the way, we said this, didn't we? That's the realm of religion, not the realm of grace. So there's urgent danger in this Christian thing we do week in and week out, where we gather together and we worship and we read our Bibles and, and we seek God together. There's urgent danger, this is the one thing, there's urgent danger in the human tendency to embrace religion but miss forgiveness, and miss grace, and miss the gospel. Religion can act like a vaccine if you think about it, an inoculation where you get enough to expose you, but <laughs> just enough to make you immune to the real thing. Somehow religion has a tendency to get into our system And give us just enough that we miss what it's all really about. Jesus, in this parable, exposes my very human tendency to want forgiveness, but not want to forgive others. To want forgiveness for myself, but also to want to hold on to my bitterness and resentment. To want grace, but not want to be gracious. To want kindness, but not want to be kind. We could go on and on all day in this sense, right? To want hope, but not share it. Want love, but not be loving. Want to be served, but not to serve. To want joy, to want peace, to want patience. To want all that Jesus offers and not want to treat people the way Jesus has treated me. I guess this is why when it comes to church, I don't have much stomach for politics, quite honestly. Because politics has a bit of that just enough to inoculate you, but plenty enough to make you hate. I'm not saying one side or the other. So as I thought about this, I thought about Four very human tendencies that are, that are laid bare by this parable. Really quickly. My human tendency to ignore conflict and pretend I'm not hurt and that there's nothing to forgive. Anybody besides me play that game? Yes. Right? Just, just shove it back down and it'll go away. It will temporarily. And when it resurfaces, it will resurface like a volcano at an unexpected time and an inconvenient time, guaranteed. And it will cause 
insufferable damage. My human tendency to minimize my sins. I'm not 10,000 bags of gold kind of stuff. I know this. If I were to collectively think about all the sins I'm consciously aware of, which would represent the worst moments of my life, And I say consciously aware of because I tend to think I'm probably consciously aware of, I don't know, maybe 1%. How tuned am I really into the greed or the lust or the pride that's deep below my soul? When we begin to pick out sins in the Christian world and go, that one's out, that one's out, that one's out, but this one's okay, and this one's okay, and this one's okay... We're just minimizing sin at this point. I think we often find it easy in a religious sense to think ours aren't all that bad, but the certain ones, man, who, you know, go fix that on your own because I got nothing to do with that one. My human tendency to magnify other people's sins in order to justify mine Certainly, I'm not a Nazi. You know, I don't have to be a Nazi to be a bad guy. I find it quite humorous how in the American political system, the other side are both Nazis. Everybody claims moral high ground. It's all a comparison game to make ourselves feel better. My human tendency to think I'm the exception to the expectation to forgive. The thinking goes like this. If Jesus really knew how wrong this person really treated me, he would know how difficult it is to forgive that sin. If Jesus really knew, I say to the eyes of the man hanging on the cross to pay for that forgiveness. If Jesus really knew. If ever there were a story that I would think that applies to, it's this Corey Ten Boom story. An officer at a concentration camp that took her sister's lives and countless others. There are very human parts of me that run away from the call to forgive. But they're all laid bare at the feet of the man dying on the cross for my sins my sins. A number of years ago, I uh, was preaching a message kind of like this one, not the same message, but similar. And I challenged us to take out a piece of paper and write down the name of a person or a sin that someone's done to you that you're struggling to forgive. And by the way, that might be a sin that you've done. And so if you're so inclined, I would challenge it the same way. I didn't give you extra paper for this, but, but gosh, don't we give you a ton of paper? You can find paper somewhere in what you were handed today where you can write something down. I know what time it is. This is worth it, I promise. 
So I challenged us to take out paper and write down the name of someone or something we were struggling to forgive. And I challenged us to have a moment in that service where there was a collective forgiveness ceremony, where we wiped away the debt together, where we literally ripped to shreds that thing we were, not the person, but the thing we were unwilling to forgive, that we were going to cancel that debt together. And I had a lady approach me after the service, and I can remember it clear as day, and I can picture her face. We were standing right up there. And she berated me for the pressure to forgive what was unforgivable. And to be fair to her, the trauma she was talking about, she unfolded for me in enough detail that it was real trauma, real abuse. And I think I tried to say to her something along the lines of what I would say to you now. I don't mean any of this is guilt. We don't forgive out of guilt, out of pressure. None of this is for me. If we were talking about my way of forgiveness today, it would definitely be hold on to that and milk it for all it's worth. Not necessarily the trauma and abuse. I'm, I realize there's real value, but impossible debt kind of to forgive. There's real value in forgiving that. And I get that you might be so hurt or traumatized that forgiveness seems like an impossible thing to come around to. And I seriously recommend finding good counselors and good therapists to help us work through these kind of things. I'm not ashamed to admit I see a counselor from time to time. It's a good thing to do. What I want for you to do towards this person is not what matters. You have to want it for yourself. And it's your decision. And you can decide whether to forgive and whether the debt is forgiven. But Jesus paid the debt. He didn't just wipe the debt off the books and declare it. He died to pay the actual debt. This and only this is what begins to make the cross make sense. Because otherwise, God should have, could have just spoken it. Like fiat is a king. He is a king, by the way. But Jesus paid it on my behalf. And then after paying off everything I owe, he put into my account everything he has. His grace, his love, his hope, his peace, his kindness. It's not just about what he canceled. It's about what he gives. That's why we call it amazing grace. So I'm going to close with our two closing prayers. And then if you would, not in some public showing, but you might want to take that thing you wrote as we pray or after we pray. and give it to Jesus. I always close with two prayers, one a prayer of salvation and two a prayer of application. And it's that prayer of application I pray today that, that's gonna help us with what we can't forgive that seems impossible to forgive. But first, if you need forgiveness, that's what grace and church, Christianity and all of this is about. And if you need forgiveness, and you need Jesus, and you need everything else he offers. Maybe you'd pray a prayer of salvation with me right now. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you. I owe an impossible debt that I could never, ever repay. But you died to forgive it. And on that basis, I ask you to forgive me. And to take over my life and to take from my account everything that's ugly and horrible and put into my account everything that is yours.
and everything that is beautiful. Help me learn to forgive like you forgive. In Jesus' name. And if that's you today, man, it's the most powerful thing that happens in this world when we follow Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Everything we do here is about that. We'd love to celebrate it, but dude, you got to tell somebody, do that. You, you got to tell somebody. Like we can't celebrate what we don't know. And it's the coolest thing in the world to celebrate, which is what baptism is about. And if you're interested in that, we can talk. You got your thing you need to forgive? This is not from me. This is not pressure and guilt. Did you catch the part in Corey's story where she said that the people she took in who had been brutalized by the Nazis, who were able to forgive, were able to go on with life. And she knew she had to forgive because the people she took in who could not were traumatized and stuck in that trauma forever. There's great psychology to back that up in modern psychology. If you've got something you need to forgive and want to forgive... Would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, I know I don't deserve your forgiveness. And I know that in many senses, the people who've hurt me may not deserve mine. But you died to forgive my sins. And theirs. And on that basis, I'm asking you to fuel my forgiveness. If this person. Help me to forgive this sin represented here. As you have forgiven me. Because you forgave what seems impossible to forgive in me, help me to forgive what seems impossible to forgive in this other person. Jesus, you died to set them free. So I set them free. And I desperately ask that you set me free in the process as well. In Jesus' name.